0: you're listening to a radio stockdale podcast podcasts that are inspiring interactive and feature various discussions of leadership ethics and law Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always, Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1920 film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yes, that is right. We are going all way back 102 years. This is the very first silent movie we've ever done, but it's Halloween. I wanted to do a horror movie, and I figured, why don't we go back to what many people consider to be one of the first horror films ever made. This is even two years before Nosferatu. Yes. The German expressionist film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So we, we talk about the plot. We want to focus specifically on the very first scene of the movie. We see this man with this other guy, and he has this paranoia that there are things around here that I can't control, yada, yada, yada. And we see this man called Francis, and he says, oh, you think that's bad? Well, there's my fiancé walking across this garden, and we just went through some crazy things. Let me tell you all about it. Mm -hmm. So more or less, he lives in this small town, and the big thing is there is a carnival coming in, a big carnival attraction. Yep. And then there is this man who calls himself Dr. Caligari, and he has a, a somnambulist? Yep which is basically a fancy term for a sleepwalker. Right. He, all, he says he's been asleep for 20 years, and only at my command can he wake up. I have him perfectly under hypnosis. So one day, Francis, with his, his friend Alan, and they, they're both in love with the same woman, but they uh, go to, to see this attraction. And there are people, you know, you ask him any question. And his friend Alan is nervous, how long will I live? And he's in the, in the um, somnambulist wakes up and says, "You will live until the break of dawn." So that gets him frightened. And apparently, as we see, he's actually setting up this um, attraction illegally, because we see the town clerk did not give Dr. Caligari the permit. He brushed him off. and yep. mysteriously, at the same time, the town clerk has now been murdered, so nobody knows who did it.: Yes. And around in that night, we find out that Alan. Dies, he is murdered. So there's this big fear across the town, and then everybody starts to suspect the somnambulist, mm-hmm. particularly because of Francis. Particularly suspects him, but around that time they investigate him. But right around there, some, uh, there's an attempt on an old lady's life by this thug, and they think, oh, and he, is, he has the same bladed weapon. So yes. they believe. It's him. They bring him in. He confesses to attempting to kill this woman, but he does not confess to the other two murders. And while they're bringing him in, the somnambulist goes and finds... So he attacks Jane, the woman that both Francis and Alan were in love with. Yeah. But eventually, when he's about to kill her, the somnambulist sort of breaks out of it a little bit. Yeah. And then it's enough people to find him, chase him, and he runs away.
1: He can't bring himself to do it, apparently. Great... A great... Part of the film, there's so many visually stunning things in this film, right? But he's he's got the knife and it's it's he's poised to drive it into her and he can't do it, so he decides instead to uh, abduct her. Takes her on a long chase. <laughs> yes,
0: and they, uh, there's a chase for the, 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 the I forget the sinambulist named Cesare, the name of the sinambulist. We forgot to mention that they uh, finally discover it. They go after the doctor Caligari and he escapes and he goes into an asylum. They're trying to find him. They go to talk to the director, and what do you know? He is the uh, director, is Dr. Caligari. Yes. While away, they l- look into his, they find some reading materials he's been collecting, and there's one a story of this uh, mystic in like the 1700s whose name was Caligari, and yeah. he had a some ambulance who he could command and commit a number of murders. Anyway, he and he's become obsessed with this, and he thinks he's Caligari, and that's why he's doing this thing. They call the police... And eventually Caesar... Uh, Cesare? Cesare. Cesare is... They show him... Che, Cesare's corpse has been found... And they show him to Caligari... And Caligari breaks down... He's put in a straitjacket... And that is sort of where it stops... Where this Francis is telling the story... Right. then he f- walks around... This We see that he is actually himself... In a mental asylum... And the people he's been describing... Are inmates of the asylum. The Cesare is actually an inmate, but he's not a sleepwalker. He's perfectly uh, uh, awake, and he's harmless. Actually, he's just like looking at flowers. And the Jane, the woman he's in love, the love with, she thinks she's a queen or something, and she has her own thing. And then we see Caligari. And Caligari is the director of this mental hospital, but he does not seem to be very mean or sadistic he's just a normal director but Francis Mm -hmm. attacks him thinking he's responsible for everything and then we and then he says you're a Caligari you're a Caligari and that's when the director says "Well, we think this is the root of all his problems this is what we think can cure him and that's the end of the movie probably one of the first notable examples of a twist ending yeah movie and this is usually when you think of that 1920s German expressionist era of cinema like this, along with probably, I would say Nosferatu, and then even going into science fiction with Metropolis, mm-hmm. is really the definitive example. It has that nothing is really what it seems. It's not realistic at all. All the set designs are weird looking and how to shape. Yeah. The doors look strange. You wouldn't want to live in this place. I mean, I always say this is probably the film Tim Burton ripped off most when he comes up yes. with his design for his films. Yes. But there is a. Um, you, when you look at this film, you think this is, German, this is two years after World War One. Now we are in the Weimar Republic. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of, especially what Germany had to go through and the repercussions they had to pay mm-hmm. for that. And there was a lot of anger and resentment, a dark feeling of uncertainty at this time. I think this movie really represents that.
1: It, it, does, it does a good job of that. And I know a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of interpretations of the film... Uh, cast Caligari in the role, uh, these interpretations uh, treat the film as kind of a projection of the future, and uh, uh, cast Caligari in the the role of um, Hitler and Cesare in the role of a very gullible public that will be led into doing anything by Hitler. Now, it's kind of interesting in reading that, Uh, You get conflicting accounts from the two producers themselves, whether they actually had that in mind or not. At least initially with the film, you have to remember it is 1920. Um, People had brought up that perhaps they had that thematic in mind. Uh, uh, given the nature of the Weimar Republic at that time and the political turmoil and unrest that was in in, in Germany at that time, now they kind of denied that, said so, no, no, it's just a straightforward kind of psychological thriller. That's all, all we were intending to do. But then later on, uh, after these uh, after they had left Germany, and after uh, 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 Hitler had uh, at least attempted the Beer Hall Putsch, which was 1923. Um, suddenly you hear them saying, yeah, we did have that in mind. So I don't know who who to believe in that case, which is kind of emblematic of the film as well. Um, But I think the point, nevertheless, is very well taken that uh, uh, it is an accurate portrayal of the political unrest, or at least something of a parable or an analog for the political unrest at that time. And not just the power of the National Socialist Party, but the Socialist Party, the Communist Party, uh, a handful of nationalist parties that were uh, big at the time in what was essentially a parliamentarian system in Germany. And quite a few of them had the kind of um, uh, uh, charismatic strongman leading them. And uh, the uh, conflicts between these parties not didn't... Uh, merely take place in the kind of the established channels of, um, political, um, institutions, but they were fighting on the streets as well. And each group had its own bully boys and, uh, paramilitary organizations. And, uh, even when, as far as, uh, 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 having, uh, their own, for lack of a better term, social work programs, which with which they brought, bought loyalty, uh, From followers, and you can—I think you can see a a little bit of uh, that kind of fascination uh, with, uh, on the public's part in this film with Caligari. I mean, he's a showman; he's putting on a show here, and uh, uh, the people are entranced with what he's able to do with this somnambulist, and he kind of uh, has a a power. Uh, after all, the power to predict the future, you know, a lot of these uh, uh, political parties at those times uh, had that conceit. The communists did, the national socialists did, thought they could um, uh, read uh, future events and foretell future events and lead people into the future. Um, so there's an element of that there, and I think it is reflective of that, um, uh, not only the chaos, but of that uh, uh Uh, almost messianic feel that a lot of those political parties had at that time. Um, The chaos, I think, is very well represented by that fair, the carnival, the festival, whatever it is that's going on. It seems to be a more or less uh, continuous thing. It's going on for at least a week, according to the uh, story here. And it's it's a small, confined space. A lot of those very... uh, um, uh, Disruptive angles makes you very uneasy. People running about at a very rapid pace in that environment, um, and that brought to mind uh, uh, just in terms of newsreel footage that you you've, you see from the 1920s and 30s of Germany. Uh, that's the way they're, uh, that's the way some of that newsreel footage feels. Um, people running around the streets, rioting, going on chaos. And all the while, the Caligari's, the leaders of the various parties, attempting to wield control, not just of the somnambulist, but those masses. Yeah, so I think they do a good job of capturing that feel visually.
0: Yeah, and that connection people make to Hitler in this movie was, I think the first person to really start that was a German critic named Siegfried Krakauer. Because mm-hmm. In 1947, he wrote a book called From Caligari to Hitler. Yeah you know, exi- starting with the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but looking at German cinema through up until the, you know, the installment of the Nazi party in 1933. Yeah, And you think one of the things, you know, people always say about Hitler was he had this, he was a great speaker. He could, you know, he could have had this influence over people, which is why he took over Germany. And you see that obviously with Dr. Caligari, because he's even, he's literally hypnotizing yeah, the somnambulance, and you look at the screenwriters that's co written uh, Hans Jonowitz and Karl Mayer. Mayer also worked with people like Friedrich Wilhelm Now and other classic German cinema in this time. Mm-hmm. They were both veterans in World War One, and later they said their experiences made them become a pacifist. And through this script, it was as they distrusted authority, they had they were completely demoralized of what happened, and you see that. When this mo- movie, because there's no authority figures, can be trusted. It's not even just Caligari. But when you look at the town clerk, how he brushes off Caligari, he thinks he's above everybody. He does, yeah. he ignores everybody, thinks he doesn't even need to talk to Caligari. So nobody in authority really looks good. Even the cops almost seem incompetent. It's really Francis, the one that brings the things to attention.
1: Yes. Yes. And uh, I, lo- I love the... Uh, 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 the way that the town clerk, he, this is the guy that is giving uh, uh, people permits to uh, take part in that uh, festival, have a tent there or an area there where they can do whatever form of entertainment they have on offer. And uh, he's, uh, uh, the, the visuals there, he's up in a high chair, right? And yes. he's shooing off the public mm-hmm. and uh, obviously irritated at having to do his job. Um, a kind of classic caricature of the burned-out bureaucrat. Um, very amusing. And it also brought to mind, for me, I mean, there, later films have st- st- stolen that, that visual, um, although it's not quite the same message being uh, relayed about the characters, but I, I re- it made me recall the, the scenes in uh, Harry Potter when he goes uh, to the bank and to the witch's bank, the goblins, goblin bank. And, and they're up on these high chairs and they've got these very exaggerated, you know, uh, spectacles that you would expect a bureaucrat to wear because he's doing all this paperwork and losing his eyesight and so mm-hmm. forth.
0: Or even the film we discussed a long time ago with
1: Yes. And has got that same kind of an exaggeration there. Now, I don't know whether or not, uh, that film was inspired by this one. Um, but, uh, again, uh, this is 1920. It's pretty darn impressive. And uh, they, they do a great job, again, of presenting caricature, uh, cartoon-like caricature in a live-action film uh, via use of the setting and uh, uh, the art. And it just, just a wonderful job, I think, there. And you're right, I think that the two policemen, uh, well-intentioned as they are, come, aco- come across as... Uh, Kind of clueless,
0: yeah. Because when they have that and, false alarm with the other murder, they're investigating Colagari. Like, right, but once they get that other call, oh, never mind. You're all good. They had him literally yeah. right there, and they just let him go.
1: Yeah, and they're and they're facing each other, sitting facing each other. When, whenever uh, 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 Francis comes to, to to report things, Francis and uh, the father of Jean, wasn't it? Yeah, and. Uh, uh, it's it's almost as if uh, they they can't comprehend what these two are saying, but they can comprehend what each other are saying quite well. So they're kind of in this kind of insulated shell, and because of that, uh, uh, not Keystone Cop incompetent, um, but still in in some sense clueless. You're right, and Francis has to do all the hard detective work.
0: Yeah, and you, when you see other some people talk about other German silent films around this time. the other most famous German horror film around this time is Nosferatu which just came out two years later when Nosferatu came you know look modern critics have sometimes wondered the depiction of Nosferatu is almost rat-like and evil Mm -hmm. and trying to control everything some people think it's anti-Semitic and it's you know you cannot understand why people would make that you know connection considering what happened to Germany just a dozen years later and some people kind of wonder if Kaligar himself is supposed to represent this evil ster- the stereotype of the evil Jew. And I, I don't necessarily, I, I, you can see why people say that because what happened just 10 years later, but I mm-hmm. think that's a little bit of a stretch for
1: this. Yeah. And as far as I could tell, looking at, uh, you know, interviews and source material, it, it would be out of character for Meyer and Janowitz, I think, um, because they, they had a, far as i could tell a sensitivity for the underdog and uh that's part of the reason part of the reason they became pacifists they they, they believe the uh, uh german government had uh, manipulated the populace into it and of course as uh, uh often happens in cases like that where the populace doesn't have much control over government decisions he they saw them as cannon fodder essentially so I, I I would be very surprised, and I could find no evidence of anti-Semitism no. on their part. Um, and it's even a stretch, I think, to say that the, the visuals and the, the makeup that Caligari has and the makeup that Nosferatu has, it's a little bit of a stretch to say that that's been purposefully created to be stereotypes of, uh, 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 to exemplify Jewish stereotypes in anti-Semitic literature and so forth. Uh, it's not that similar, I don't think,
0: yeah, and I think there's been a lot, and like especially at this time, like specifically looking at German silent film it wasn't i don't think there was anti there actually was a horror film about the Golem, but it wasn't progressing anti stereotypes, it was just showing that this is a legend of Jewish folklore, right, and even because I think one of the reasons why people say this because Hitler famously said that Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which came out seven years after this film, was his favorite movie. But Fritz Lang hated Hitler, yeah. and he left Germany once they took over, and he sp- even made anti-Nazi movies when he came over here to America. Yeah. So, I yeah, I, d- I definitely agree. I think that's a stretch. But when you think about this movie, because, you know, it has the famous twist ending. Yeah. E- so everything you've watched doesn't happen. You wonder, so is there any truth at all to what he's saying? Is, the, is this director really a bad guy, or is this all in his head, and... Is Francis maybe a reflection of the PTSD that maybe many war veterans in Germany went through at that time, like the screenwriters Mayer and Jonowitz? So is that more of just them projecting of what they've experienced in wars and putting in like into this complete fantasy
1: world? Yeah, it's that's an interesting case, an uh, interesting question. Because very often what happens in the face of extreme trauma is that people develop uh, delusions and psychosis as a kind of a reaction formation against it. And they start to believe things that uh, are, uh, uh, from the outsider's point of view, patently untrue. But from that insider's perspective, uh, not only do they believe it's true, but in some way it's kind of a refracted and, as it were, uh partially presented uh uh, version of reality so uh in in this particular case uh the doctor we never know his real name by the way um but the doctor called Kaligari, right Mm -hmm. um he uh he does uh seem to be exerting control and uh uh uh, in the delusion he's also obviously exerting control over Francis in some way or another and the somnambulist and Jane um, so that much of, of the objective reality is kind of making its way into Francis Francis's delusion um, and and that's quite typical of the paranoid psychotic. Um, there, there are elements of the story that they, their mind is weaving for them, um, even though it's vastly conspiratorial, uh, that are nevertheless reflective of reality. But they never quite uh, have the kind of breakthrough experience of reality uh, 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 shattering the delusion, them having a, a moment of lucidity and figuring it out. But, uh, 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 unlike, I mean, this this film reminded me of another film for this reason, and also I think I, I see some uh, thematic resonances with it as well, uh, Shutter Island. Um, Shutter Island is a, another case where you have a presentation of a, a delusional world. And, yeah,
0: spoiler alert for Shutter Island. <laughs> yeah,
1: and... Uh, At first, you, the audience, because the protagonist, naturally you're being presented with the experiences through the eyes of the protagonist. Uh, You you take him at his word, so to speak. Uh, And only as the story progresses do you realize these things are too darn weird to be real. And then they have the reveal at the end, right? Something like that is happening with this film too. Um, And what I find to be very interesting about it is... uh, Um, uh, it leaves it to some degree still somewhat ambiguous at the end because if you notice the framing story i mean at the beginning there he's telling his story to the guy on the park bench and i can't remember who that guy is but that setting looks relatively normal and then you get to the uh, middle section of the film with the town and the crazy angular uh, 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 environment and the the very exaggerated characters and so forth. And then you get to, to the final section where the big reveal is made. Um, you notice what's curious about that final section is that final setting, it's, in, it's supposed to be inside the asylum, it still doesn't look completely normal. It still looks a little jagged-edged and expressionist and a little bizarre. So That leaves you with the question hanging. How much, as you pointed out earlier, how much of this uh, can we trust this final picture we're being given of, quote, reality? Um, Great question. In real life, it's it's relatively easy to answer that question. We rely on intersubjective verifiability with other people. And generally, you can come to some kind of a consensus as to, What's real, what's delusion or illusion, as the case may be. And, and that's kind of how we deal with uh, uh, everyday reality. that's how science is done and so forth. Um, we're not given that luxury in this film because every, uh, every main character that is, as it were, a part of the, a direct part of the story is involved in Francis's uh, delusion. We're still being presented all of the experiences through Francis's eyes. And at at the very best, we see him having maybe a 25% lucidity, if you were, at the end of the film. But we can't even trust that because the setting still looks kind of uh, twisted and schizophrenic.
0: And even some people say when... The doctor says, you know, we we might be able to find a cure for him because we find out this Caligari is the root of all his problems. But as he's being dragged away, some people say you can almost see a sinister smile on the doctor. Yeah,
1: and I I had to actually rewind that and watch it a couple times because the last time I watched this film, which was quite a few years ago, I remember when they do that iris shot. This, you know, the the film focuses down uh, onto faces at several points in this film, but. Um, I remember that last iris shot on, on the doctor revealing him as much more sinister. And I watched it this time, and he doesn't look that sinister to me, but still,
0: there's just a it's little the, hint. There's a hint. Might, might so, be there, might not be. Yeah, and,
1: and that's, that's I, I think, purposeful, but I, I thought it was funny because my memory of the film was... Flawed. <laughs> it wasn't quite as sinister as I remembered it, but that's good because they want you to leave, they want to leave you hanging with that ambiguity. And they're asking us to uh, consider, you know, uh, uh, our own cases, right? And in, in every case, in, in, inevitably, it's unavoidable. We're subjective beings, we experience things from a point of view with interpretations that can go off the rails. And they're kind of asking us to think about that. There, how confident are you that your interpretation of your reality is, in fact, largely correct? Or even correct in some minor details that might be important for you? Um, they're kind of wanting to point that out to us. In a way, we're all kind of confined in our own interpretations, just like Francis is, maybe unable to get out of them.
0: Yeah, and you look at Caligari, the, the design uh, Mayer and Jonowitz used was of the philosopher Schopenhauer. And I was wondering, is some of Schopenhauer's teachings and beliefs reflected in Kalingar, um, or was it just they wanted him to look like him?
1: That, that's a good question. I, I found that, too. I think they just literally—I'll um, I'll answer this in two ways. They are literally uh, just wanted to make him look like Schopenhauer, because uh, Schopenhauer is a kind of a— he was a character. This guy was a character, German philosopher. Uh, he was uh, around in the 1800s, uh, very influenced by Immanuel Kant and uh, uh, m- made his own living. As a, he was, uh, contrary to Kant, an, ex- an excellent writer. You can't say that about Immanuel Kant, but Schopenhauer was an excellent writer. In many, ways, many ways popularized Kant's philosophy. But I think all they wanted to do was visually have the guy look like Schopenhauer But um, there is definitely a connection there with that theme I was talking about because uh, uh, Kant's big theme, Schopenhauer uh, certainly follows up on it, uh, is that um, uh, we, in a way, and this is a very rough thumbnail sketch of it, we, in a way, construct our own realities. We necessarily come at reality with uh, uh, the filters of interpretation. We can get outside of interpretation and, as it were, compare our interpretations with uh, reality as it really is, really is to see how close a match there is. As I said earlier, the best we can do is uh, work intersubjectively, uh, more than one person working on the same problem, for instance, and, and, and in order to find uh, uh, some sort of evidence for uh, interpretations being uh Closer to, or at a farther remove from, the objective state of affairs, and he's very big on that. Uh, Schopenhauer and Kant both. Um, we come at the world with these uh, interpretive filters, and uh, uh, there's no way around that, uh, and it leads to some paradoxical statements and, uh, that people often uh, uh, make from that point of view: is so that we, we, we construct the world from, as it were, the inside out. Um, but yeah, so th- that theme is there. That theme is there. The uh, inescapability of our subjective experience.
0: Okay. All right. getting close to the end of my questions here. One thing I do, bringing up sort of the, you know, this connection of what does this lead into the events of the rise of the Nazi power? We should bring up the fact that um, Cesare, Mm-hmm. The synambulist is played by Conrad Viet. Yes, you, if those who don't know, that is Colonel Strasser uh, in uh, Casablanca. Yes, and he spent uh, la- he died in a car accident in 1943. But yeah. during that time, he had no problem playing na- uh, Nazi evil Nazi bad guys in mo- Hollywood movies at that time because he wa- he left Germany because of that, and he wanted to yeah. you know, highlight how ruthless the Nazis were. Yes. And um, if, if you talk about, you know, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, you see the influence of that in so many other works of movies and even other works of art. Um, like I've said, Tim Burton is specifically Beetlejuice when they go into the world of the dead. The, the, that, that same thing with the weird designs, everything triangular, he totally he, ripped that off. Yes. But, um, he just added color to it. Yeah, That's all he did. Added color in Alec Baldwin. And then... Um, <laughs> You got you have you have that, but also one thing people want. If you're a fan of the '90s uh, hip uh, rap rock band, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, their music video for their song "The Other Side" is clearly influenced by Caligari, and they're they're like even playing bass lines on power lines that's like still crooked and strange. Yeah, wanted to bring that up and yeah. just. You see, this is why we're still talking about this movie 102 years ago, because yeah. of the influence. Yeah,
1: it, it is an amazingly influential film. And it, managed, it manages to pack a lot in. Uh, I, I think I would say, in, in closing here, um, just our discussion shows that this, this movie, maybe it's singular in this regard, it functions as a kind of a Rorschach ink blot. For the viewers. There are so many interpretations of this film. You see political interpretations, you see the psychological interpretations, you see the philosophical interpretations. Um, there aren't very many films in the history of, of cinema that are that open to that divergent a set of interpretations. And I think that's... Uh, Again, I think reflective of that theme they, they wanted to talk about, how interprets, it's interpretations all the way down with human beings. We can't help it. That's just the nature of subjective and intersubjective experience. But it's also, a, I think, a testament to um, the uh, uh, prowess of the two producers. I think they realized all this. There was, they had inklings of all of these themes uh, when they sat down to write this script. And it makes it all the more remarkable uh, that it happened in 1920. And German cinema produced similar films all during that time period. And I don't know if that's a testament to the fact that political unrest uh, um, often gives rise to periods of high artistic uh, accomplishment, but maybe it does. (laughs) We're going back to the cuckoo clock speech from the third
0: man. Yes, that's right. Alright, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy of the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, reach up and so dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. Before we sign off, we're doing a little bit of a change here. We are going to announce the film we are going to discuss for the next episode, and it will be the 1984 uh, film that was produced by the BBC, Threads. We wanted to do that just so it would give you a chance to watch the film before the episode comes out, so we don't just drop it on you trying to watch it after. So now you got time to watch it. Threads. Threads from 1984. Okay. All right. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker and I'm Sean Baker saying so long. Be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.